So let me ask you this question just to get our hearts moving in the right direction. When you hear me say the word peace, when you hear me say the word peace, what comes to mind? Somebody on the side. If I say peace, you think of what? Be with you. There you go. You finished the sentence. Yeah, that's good. Somebody else. Anybody else on this side? Be still. Oh, come on. That's good. Stillness. Calm. Yes, I like it. I like it. Jamal? Ocean waves. Like, like when you're there at the ocean, just being there, just the, yeah, the, 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 yes, that dull roar of the ocean, the repetitiveness. I can feel it right now. Come on, Summer. Come on, Summer. Somebody else. Cleo, how about you? Do you have anything? Yes, a clean diaper. A clean diaper. Snacks in the nursery. Yes. When you hear peace, what do you think of? Yes, peace and joy be with you. Yes, somebody else? Anybody over here? Everybody's like, don't look at the teacher. Somebody? Peace? Rest. All good, darling. Peace on earth. Come on, you're setting me up for my verse. Very good. We didn't even have that planned. Peace on earth. Let's look at Luke 2.14. We can't talk about the Christmas story and, and not think about the moments that the, the, the shepherds were in the fields watching their flocks. And it says that the heavens were open and, 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 a, and, a, and a host of angels, right? This, this massive chorus of angels begin to sing this song that went like this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, part of that, I think absolutely, is them proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, But I also believe part of it were the angels giving us some insight into what life could now be because of the Messiah. Meaning that there was a peace that we could have that Jesus was going to bring with him that he was going to impart to us. The peace that we call shalom. Now, you might be familiar with this word shalom. You, you, even if you're unfamiliar with church or if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you've probably seen that word or heard that word somewhere. And, and the word shalom, the word shalom comes from the Hebrew language, and it's the word, especially in the Old Testament, with, that translates peace. So when you get to your Bible and, and the word peace appears, in the original language, it was often shalom. Now, in the New Testament, that was written in Greek. You, you find the word peace. It's, it's typically going to be the word irene. But, but that was the Greek language trying to find a sense of articulating the word shalom that comes from Hebrew. This is, this is my belief when I think about what shalom is. Shalom's a big word. It's a big idea. It's a big concept. But the, but the part that we're going to focus in on for this sermon series is the part of shalom that is an attitude. It's the part of shalom that is a disposition. It's the part of shalom that I would say is a state of mind and heart. If I could say it this way, shalom is like the zip code for peace. You're either in it or you're not. Right, you think about your physical address. If you're if you're a parent, right, at some point you 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 try to help your children to memorize their address. That, that that it speaks to where they live. I would argue that shalom is a place where our hearts can live. Right, it's a state of mind, it's a state of heart, it's a disposition. 
If the idea of shalom is new for you, then let me encourage you to check out the Bible Project. I love all kinds of things that the Bible Project does on YouTube. You can go there. They have all these great videos. A lot of them are great for kids, too. Just just basic information about the Bible and biblical concepts that you can familiarize yourself with. They have one on just on the idea of shalom. Now, sometimes you have to be careful because sometimes modern-day theological publications, I would argue respectfully, attach shalom too much to a Western concept of material wealth. There's a group out. I'm a big fan of this group. It's called the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. They have an article called What is Shalom, what is shalom According to the Bible? And, and, and if you're interested in that, you can check it out. And these notes are always online. If, 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 if I'm giving these more than you faster, you can write them down. You can download them this week. What is Shalom according to the Bible? I like to throw out sometimes some references to resources that maybe are a little bit differently than what we believe because that's part of how you, you, you challenge what you believe. It's how you, 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 you check for blind spots that you might have. Let's not be afraid to read things that disagree with us. Can we say that? And, and so in this article, you're going to find, I think, that I, I appreciate their concept of human flourishing that they bring out, but I feel like they attach it a little bit too much to material things, where I would, I would argue that shalom is something that you can have in spite of material gain. That even in the midst of scarcity and poverty, shalom can still be your peace of mind. So here, here's my definition. Shalom is a deep sense of well-being and goodness. Who does not want that? Right? It is a deep sense, meaning that right? we all have times where we've felt good, but then all of a sudden something goes wrong in our day, and that feeling of goodness disappears, right? Like a morning mist, right? There, there's a sense of well-being and goodness that is a surface-level emotion that is dependent and contingent on how well my day is going. It's dependent and contingent on maybe how the relationships are happening around me. But shalom is something deeper than that. Shalom is something deep inside of me that regardless of what's happening around me, there is a sense of well-being, there is a sense of goodness that is not easily displaced. It is a gift that God wants to give to you. It's a gift And can I just say this too? What you believe about the source of the giver will build a belief in you about the gift that's to come. What you believe about God builds in you a belief about the gifts that he wants to give to you. I don't know about you, but I can think of some people in my life, throughout the story of my life, and I'm pretty sure I do not want to receive gifts from them. You with me? You have anybody? Is it just me? That you think to yourself, you know, I don't know if I want that person giving me gifts because I'm not sure what's going to be in that box, right? Because what you believe about the source, what you believe about the giver, creates a context for your expectations about the gift that you're going to receive. Can we also agree that sometimes what we believe about God is not necessarily who he is? Can we just agree that in this journey in life, one of the reasons why being in community is so important, one of the reasons why the study of Scripture is so important is to constantly challenge what we believe about God because, and for many reasons, but one of them is because what you believe about Him creates an expectation in you about what you're going to receive from Him. I think it's one of the reasons why the Lord's Prayer starts the way that it does. Jesus starts the Lord's Prayer by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
the last part of that hallowed be your name is me saying to God that there is no one like you. The idea of him being in heaven is me saying to God that there is nothing that you cannot do. And the idea of him being my father says, and I matter to you. See, when you believe those three things about God, it begins to shape something in your mind. It begins to shape in you an unrelenting belief that God is good. When you believe in the goodness of God, then it creates an expectation about every gift that's going to come from him. It's why in the book of James it says, every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven. I think the reason why the Holy Spirit inspired James to use the words good and perfect is because it's also describing the nature of God. And when we grasp the nature of God, we begin to grasp the nature of the gifts that he wants to give to us. I believe, I hope you do too, in the goodness of God, our Father, my Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. There is no one like you. There is nothing you can't do. And I matter to you. The goodness of God says to me that he always has my best interest at heart. When you walk through this life with a belief in the goodness of God, a belief in the goodness of God that translates into a belief that he always has your best interest at heart, can I just, can I just ask you to trust that it's possible that there is a gift of peace that he wants to give to you and that peace and that gift, that deep sense of, of well-being and goodness is attached in some way to what you believe about the one who wants to give you the gift. I believe, I believe that well-being and goodness deep in my heart is possible because the one who wants to give it to me is all of those things. See, this is important. Because if your shalom and your peace is not attached to the source, then it will be displaced by the circumstance. See, see when, when, when your sense of peace is connected to who God is, then it doesn't matter what's happening around you. There can be a sense of well-being and goodness that you carry. If your sense of well-being and goodness is connected to how well your day is going, then there are going to be times where you're at peace, and then there's going to be times when you're not at peace. And I feel like when I read through the Scriptures, even in moments where, where Jesus is wrestling with the troubles of his day, it always seems to me there's just something inside of him that is steady. And what I would say is it's his shalom. There's a sense of well-being. There's a sense of goodness that Jesus carried all throughout his life. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to read in verse 23 to 27. This is a story that many of you might be familiar with. I believe this is history. I believe in the historicity of Scripture. But I also believe in, 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 in the prophetic nature of Scripture, meaning that a lot of what's happening in Scripture is also to teach us ab ab about a history, about the history of God revealing himself to man. But I also believe that there's prophetic imagery, meaning that the things that the Holy Spirit chose to inspire the writers of Scripture to include were supposed to be pictures of other things. I'm going to explain that in this story. Verse 23 says, Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake, 
How many of you know there's all kinds of suddenlies that are waiting for us in this life? Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. Listen to what it says about Jesus. He knelt down in a frantic panic with a bucket, bailing the water out of the boat. How many of you know that's not what the Bible says? People are like, what is he reading from? Like, I don't know that translation. Yeah, me neither. Because that's not what it says. What does it say? It says, but Jesus was, what was Jesus doing? Yes. There's all kinds of biblical references to napping in the Bible, just so you know. We should add a 13th pathway called napping. Can we do that? Oh, I think we're on to something tonight, church. I like it. I like it. Listen, it says, the disciples went and woke him up shouting. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, are you awake? Are you awake? No, 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 no. Shout. They're in a pan. They're in a full-on panic. Many of the men who were in this boat earned their living on the water. They were fishermen. From the moment they were old enough to walk, even probably before them, their fathers were fishermen. They, they grew up. So we know if they're afraid, it's serious. I said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And Jesus responded, why are you afraid you have so little faith? Listen, Jesus was in the same storm. He was in the same boat. And he was in the same circumstance. But there was a peace that he had inside of him. Listen to what it says. It says, then he got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves. And suddenly there was a great calm. And the disciples were amazed, who is this man? They asked that even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, we know that this story is in the Bible for many reasons, but I believe one of them is this, that it is supposed to be prophetic imagery, that there is a calmness that we can have on the inside, regardless of the storm that might be raging on the outside. That there is a peace, there is a shalom, there is a calm, there is a sense of well-being and goodness that we can carry on the inside, even if something tumultuous is happening, happening around us on the outside. I think one of the reasons why Jesus calmed the storm is that he was creating a prophetic picture of the calm that he can create in you. Right? He's creating a, he, he was creating a prophetic picture is that same calm that needed to happen on the sea sometimes needs to happen in you and me. And the storm might continue to rage out here, but there's a sense of well-being and goodness that we carry in our hearts that the Bible calls shalom, shalom. John 14, 27 is going to come up on the screen. This, this message is in, in, entitled His Peace and Our Promise. We, we call it our, our promise because Jesus makes a promise to you and to me. He, he doesn't just say, hey, shalom is possible. He doesn't just say, hey, it's out there and maybe you'll find it or maybe you won't. He doesn't say, hey, some are going to get it, but others aren't. Listen to what he said. He says, I am leaving you with a gift, a peace. Come on, shalom, peace of mind and heart, right? A state of mind and heart, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. Meaning there's, there's no other source for this kind of peace. There's no other source for this kind of well-being and goodness the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled 
or afraid. He does not promise us a trouble-free life. He doesn't promise us a storm-free life. In fact, he says just the opposite. He tells us that trouble's going to be waiting for us. Storms in life are going to be waiting for us. But yet he says, hey, there is a gift that I want to give to you. It's what he carried, and then he passes it on to us. The gift of shalom. A deep, deep sense of well-being and goodness. I don't know about you, but I want that gift in my life. This series is going to be, we're going to take this all the way through December and probably into January. This series is going to, is going to be about how this gift of shalom, Jesus has promised to us, is related to and connected with the four primary relationships that we have in this life. And until we are ready to accept the biblical concept of portion, we will never fully experience shalom. Now, I want to talk about that just for a moment, and then I'm going to pivot to something else, but I'm just kind of just letting you know where we're going to be headed in this series. The, the four primary relationships that every human being have, there's a slide that's going to pop up that's going to give us the first two. The, the, the first two is this. You have a relationship with God, but you also have a relationship with yourself. And, 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 and shalom is a part of all of these relationships, it's especially a part of these two, and it's a part of the next two that are going to come in just a minute. But, but there is a sense of shalom that you and I are supposed to have in our relationship with God. And, and, it, and until you are ready to be at peace with your portion in relationship to your relationship with God, then that sense of well-being and goodness is always going to be elusive to you. Pastor Justin's going to tackle that one. No, I'm going to go back to the other one, Eve. There you go. Thank you. You, you've got to be willing to embrace his sovereignty. Right? The, the, the portion that is given to us in the human experience is, 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 is a portion of being subject to the sovereignty of God, meaning that there are things in this life that we cannot control, that there are things in this life that no matter how hard we try, we can't change the outcome. And until we are ready to come to a place where we embrace his sovereignty, right, then that peace is always going to be elusive to us. You've got to be willing to embrace your unchangeables. You've got to be at peace with yourself. There are things in your life that also you cannot change. And many of those things are because of the sovereignty of God. And maybe that in and of itself is a source of consternation and frustration with you. Then this is going to be a good series with you. That There is a portion that is assigned to us in this life. There are things that are given to us by God that we cannot change. The unchangeables. All right, let's look at the next two. We have to be willing to be at peace with others and at peace with creation. We've got to be willing to embrace the diversity in the world. Can, can, we just, can we just say for a minute, if we keep trying to spend the rest of our lives trying to form people in our image, we are trying to undo something that God has already done. The whole concept of Imago Dei is that God created them in his image. And it's hard for us to accept sometimes that he wanted to reveal something of himself to the world through others that he didn't choose to reveal in us. And so in our relationship with other people, shalom is present. And shalom is being willing to embrace the difference in other people. We're going to do a whole week on that. And then this idea, oh, come on, I know you don't like the word chores. Yeah, we have chores. How many, you have chores. Being at peace with creation means that you accept the reality that God put you here to do some things, to be productive 
to be a contributing member of society, but also a contributing member of the kingdom of God. There are tasks that are assigned to you and that are assigned to me. Do we have some choice in tasks? I think we do. I think there's some multiple choice in this life. I think God sometimes gives us choices. We'll be talking about that in this series. But some things he assigns to us. It's non-negotiable. Again, if you've got kids some, right, or if you, right, you grew up in a house where there were chores, right? sometimes you had a choice, sometimes you did not have a choice. Remember on Saturday morning, I'm trying to sleep. My dad's always started the lawnmower outside of my bedroom window. He did. He's a wise man. That was him saying to me, you do not have a choice right now in whether or not you're going to sleep or whether or not you're going to help. There, there's, there's chores. There's work that has been assigned to you and to me. Embrace your chores. These four relationships, we're going to see how shalom is a part of them. And if you're not willing to embrace how shalom is part of them, then even if you believe in the goodness of God, even if you believe he has your best interest at heart, even if you embrace this belief and this idea that your shalom is not contingent on your circumstance, until you're willing to bring that shalom with you into these four relationships, that sense of peace and well-being will always be elusive to you. All right, now let's shift gears a little bit. Somebody say, the person before the peace. The person before the peace. See, see, you can't have Jesus' peace without first having Jesus. Let me say that again. You can't have Jesus' peace without first having Jesus. Jesus just doesn't want to give us gifts and then walk away. Right? Jesus doesn't just want to give things to us, but then not be in relationship with us. In fact, I would argue that everything that he wants us to have that comes from his hand begins first by being invited into a relationship with him in the first place. And that relationship with him is more important than anything that he would give us. But anything that he wants to give us is never going to be had until we first accept him. So we've been doing this welcome home moment every week in 2023. I've been praying about it. We're going to continue to do it in some way, I think, in the future of the church. Because talking about the gospel is important to us. And I hope it's important to you. We want every person who walks into these doors or logs in as part of our online community at some point in their life to have a sense of being welcomed home by heaven. It's not about being welcomed to this church. It's about you being able to look back into the story of your life and having a sense that there was a moment in time where you felt welcomed home by heaven. Because we believe that all of us in this life share the same deep abiding need, and that's to know God and to be known by him. It is a hunger and a thirst that is deep inside of you and me. And we will chase after things in this life until that hunger and that thirst is satisfied. And we might try to do everything that's possible and it will never quite be satiated because Jesus is the only one that can do it. You and I are born into this life separated from God. And our regrets, and all of us have them, they keep us separated from God. And it creates this great dilemma for us, right? Because here we are separated from him, but our great desire is to know him and to be known by him. 
And one day you and I are going to stand before God on a day of judgment and have to give an account for our lives. And for some people, it breaks our heart to know that that will be the very first time that they will ever have a sense of knowing God and being known by him. And we want to change that. We want people to know that you can know him now. You can know him today. There's a favorite verse of ours in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, If anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Who doesn't want to be the new person that God created you to be? Who, who doesn't want to reach for the destiny that God put in you from the moment you took your very first breath? Jesus says to you and to me that there is a newness of life that comes when we devote our lives to him. And part of that newness of life is new desires. Part of that newness of life is to dream after and reach for new things. It might be that some of your regrets you're still wrestling with because you find yourself going and falling down these same traps. And Jesus says, I've got something that can fix that, and it's called a new heart. When we make a vow of devotion to Jesus, he begins to change us on the inside, giving us new desires, giving us new hopes, giving us new dreams, giving us a new way to live. And not only does he create newness of life for us here and now, he offers us forgiveness for every regret that we've ever had. And you know how it even gets it even better? Because we're still going to make mistakes. And he says, I'm willing to forgive those things too. When he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, grace was made possible through a substitutionary sacrifice. So that for every one of us, one day when this life comes to an end and we stand before God on that day of judgment, we don't have to be in fear of condemnation. We can step into that moment with a hope, a humble hope of an invitation by our creator to enter into eternity with him. We're telling that story every week because in hearing, people believe. And in believing, believing, they might make their own profession of faith in Christ. And we trust that if you're here tonight and as you look back over the story of your life, you can't find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ. You'll find it with us here tonight at the end of the service. People that make that vow of devotion to Christ in our modern-day contemporary culture are called Christians. We get this term as we look throughout Scripture. We find it used various times in the New Testament. There's Acts 11.26, and there's Acts 26.28, there's 1 Peter 4.16. And, and this idea of Christian comes from the, a part of Jesus' name. We refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, but it's important that we understand that wasn't Jesus' last name. Right? When I introduce myself to people, I say, hey, I'm Fred Michaud. When Jesus introduced himself to people, he did not introduce himself as Jesus Christ, right? He would have introduced himself as, I'm Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. So if you were to transport me back 2,000 years ago, right, and if I were to introduce myself, if I were to do some time traveling, I would have to be culturally relevant. I would say, hey, my, my name is Fred, son of Paul, who grew up in Verina. And people are like, where is that? I know you cannot find it. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's a, a little bit of nowhere just outside of Richmond. right? But the idea was that your identity was connected to your father and then where you were from. How many of you know there's some prophetic imagery in that? I want my identity to be connected to my heavenly father. And not just where I'm from, but come on, where I'm headed to a heavenly place. Christ is a title. 
We call him Jesus Christ because it is a title that means the anointed one. It's a, it's a, a modern way of saying that we recognize him to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So, so when we identify as being a Christian, really what we're saying is that I am a devoted follower to a man by the name of Jesus who's not just a man but fully God and is the Messiah that God sent to the world to save us. He is the anointed one, the Savior of the world. See, the very first way that followers of Jesus were identified was not by calling them Christians. That, that came later. Many historians believe it was a, a, a title that was, that was coined in, in the city of Antioch, and it wasn't even one of honor at first. It was one that was demeaning. Another sermon for another time. But the early disciples, they were called followers of the way. Look at this verse that's going to pop up. It says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. And lots of historians believe that this, this concept of being followers of the way came from this talk that Jesus gave to his disciples as he was approaching his death. He referred to himself as the way, and so the early church picked up on that. Let's go to the next verse. It says in Acts 19, 1 through 2, and it says, Meanwhile, Saul, this is Paul the Apostle, before his conversion when he was killing Christians. Right? Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Followers of the way. Listen to this quote from Relevant Magazine back in 2002. I love it. It says, being a follower of the way is not a path to travel, but rather a pattern to follow. Come on, that's good, isn't it? It's not a path to travel, but rather a pattern to follow. An example, if you will. In order to follow the way, we have to be like the way, we have to imitate the way. And we need to pay careful attention to the life of the way and let people see that in us. The early Christians were not called Christians because they were pious people who lived morally superior lives with a conding attitude toward their fellow man. Come on, let's just let that sink in for a minute. God forgive us. Listen to this. They were called Christians, which means Christ-like ones, because they imitated their leader. They lived lives of compassion, love, humility, patience, and virtue. Come on, that's so good. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. As the band's coming, listen to this. Let me share this thought with you. First century people who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah were identified by names that placed a greater emphasis on becoming like Jesus and not just believing in Jesus. Come on. First century people who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah were identified by names that placed a greater emphasis on becoming like Jesus and not just believing in Jesus. You throw that definition up for me for shalom one more time. A deep sense of well-being and goodness that is anchored in Jesus. See, I'm adding to the definition there for you a little bit. It's a deep sense of well-being and goodness that is anchored in Jesus. 
Now, I've been talking to you tonight about wanting to have this gift that Jesus gives to you. I've been talking to you tonight about wanting to have this sense of well-being and goodness that's deep inside of you that's not connected to your circumstances or your situation, a deep sense of well-being and goodness that's not connected to your day, but it's connected to your creator. Right? This idea of what you believe about God creates a belief in you about the gifts that he wants to give to you. So, I'm, I'm, so I've been talking about this idea of wanting to have this gift that he wants to give to you in the same way as you enter into this, this Christmas season. It might be that you're expecting a gift that someone's going to give to you and you can't wait to have it because of the enjoyment that it's going to bring to you. And I would just say there's nothing wrong with that. Can we just say that when God promises us gifts, part of it is because he wants to create an expectation of enjoyment inside of us. Part of it is because he is a perfect father. He does always have our best interests at heart. And he delights in showering us with things that are beyond this world. But can I just ask you to add something to that? Meaning that our desire for shalom and our longing for peace can't just be about what's in it for us. Because the more we experience shalom, the more we bring that peace into our relationship with God and into our relationship with ourselves and into our relationship with others and into our relationship with creation, can I just say to you, the more our lives are going to point other people to Jesus. Part of the reason why we want to chase after shalom in this life is because this peace that he wants to give to us is supposed to be a cornerstone of our witness to the world. Something inside of us that maybe the world on the outside looking in would say, why aren't they troubled? Why, why aren't they stressed? Why aren't they anxious? Not that we're not going to experience those emotions in this life, because we are. But the question is, are those the things that are going to be fleeting? You with me? And is there the deep sense of well-being and goodness that is going to rise to the surface? And then, and then, we become something that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, that we have an opportunity to be a light to the world. So, Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray for everybody in this room that has come in here feeling troubled. I pray for everybody that might be logged on tonight as part of our online community that logged in feeling troubled. Father, we pray that shalom would be within reach, that the gift of your peace would be within their grasp, that e even now, even now, at the sound of my voice, even now, as the music plays, they would have a sense of extending the hands of their heart, receiving from you a gift of peace that only you can give. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.